Good morning, noon, or night, wherever and whenever you are listening. You are listening to The Shift. This is episode 16. We're recording this on October 12th, 2017. If you like what you're hearing, please think about becoming a patron. Uh, that'll help uh, produce more and more of these episodes. So you can do that at patreon.com backslash The Shift. If you want to find out more, please check out my Facebook page. That's The Shift with Doug McKenty. Join the conversation on Twitter at McKenty, or find our archives and more information about the podcast at theshiftnow.com. My guest on the program today is Paul Cienfuegos, longtime anti-corporate activist and pioneer for the revolutionary and fast-growing political movement known as Community Rights. This simple, nonviolent political action utilizes community organizations and the power of local ordinances and initiatives to challenge the long-established doctrine of corporate rights. By requiring corporations to sue localities in order to maintain control over local resources, the community rights movement seeks to strengthen communities and weaken corporate power one precedent at a time. Early in his career as a political activist, Paul was involved in many single-issue actions before coming to the conclusion that the many issues of concern were all symptoms of corporate rule. In 1995, he moved to Northern California and founded Democracy Unlimited of Humboldt County, focusing primarily on educating the public about the relationship between public policy and corporate rule. In 2011, Paul moved to Portland, Oregon, where he helped develop Community Rights PDX, which seeks to pass a Portland Community Bill of Rights via the initiative process. Most recently, he is launching a new community rights network, Community Rights U.S., which seeks to develop this fledgling political concept into a nationwide movement powerful enough to take on the corporate oligarchy. Paul Cienfuegos, thanks for agreeing to be on the program, and thank you for helping to make the shift. How's it going today? Pretty well. We've had a big morning. We just launched Community Rights U.S. officially just about five hours ago. I was up half the night, so it's kind of a big day. Yeah, I believe it. I'm really excited to see where this is going. Just uh, for full disclosure, I've worked with Paul myself. Uh, here in Mendocino County, we've uh, passed an anti-fracking initiative that was uh, community rights based. And so I've learned a lot from Paul about how to do these kinds of political actions. I, I find them to be really effective myself. Uh, and I'm really excited to hear about uh, this new network that Paul is starting and uh, just uh, get some more information about the history of community rights, corporate rule, and how the whole thing is working. Um, Paul, do you want to give us just start off with a little bit of your history, how you got turned on to the community rights idea, and uh, you know just an overview of what community rights is all about? Yeah, sure. Um, way back in um, 1995, I was living on Vancouver Island in the wilderness and working for Friends of Clackwood Sound on the west coast of Vancouver Island, and I came upon an article by Richard Grossman that was asking a really seminal question about how can it be that we've got thousands of single-issue campaigns going on all over the United States, but they don't seem to add up? Our environmental and our labor and our social justice uh, struggles just get worse and worse. The trajectory is going in the wrong way. And one of the things that they concluded to try to understand the why was that our activism wasn't effective. And why wasn't it effective? Because we were focusing on specific corporate harm, specific corporate proposals that were harmful and not understanding that it was inevitable that these corporate proposals were all going to be approved by a regulatory agency system that was designed to approve and legalize and regulate and normalize corporations doing whatever they wanted to do. And so it was just this aha moment because up until then, 
I'd been working on clear-cut logging issues and nuclear power, nuclear weapons issues and other things in Washington and in British Columbia. And I realized that everything I'd ever been working on was a mere symptom of corporate rule, as you said. Mm. Um, and it just, it changed my life. And I contacted Richard Grossman, who had just founded the program on corporations, law and democracy and got trained by them and then founded the first local organization that really reframed what the problem was. The problem wasn't, for example, that clear-cut logging is happening. The problem is that we, the people, the sovereign people, are allowing logging corporation executives to make logging decisions, logging policy, and that we need to take that authority back as the sovereign and say, if you want to log, here's the rules, here's the requirements, here's the prohibitions, and you can stretch this to be about pipelines or the healthcare crisis or mm -hmm. GMO agriculture or foreign policy, right? We're in a situation where corporations are basically, corporate directors are making virtually all of the decisions that matter that impact all of us, and we need to seize back that authority. Yeah, I mean, what you're talking about is this concept of regulatory capture, and we see this revolving door, especially in Washington, D.C., but in all the state capitals, where it's the people who work for the corporations that get the job with the federal or state regulatory agencies. And it's just this back and forth of, of a, a corrupt system, essentially. Well, so I want to actually challenge you a little bit on this because mm -hmm. it's not regulatory capture. That is the common belief. But what's actually true is that the entire regulatory system of law was designed starting in the 1880s to give us exactly the system that we now have that's inevitable. That Starting in the 1880s, literally the attorney general of the United States meeting with the railroad company executives came up with a new kind of lawmaking called regulatory law, regulatory uh, agencies, quote, that was to be a sort of barrier between the railroad corporations and the people. And I'll read you just one other quick quote. Charles Adams, president of Union Pacific Railroad, saw what was needed to solve the railroad corporation's problems, quote, what is desired is something having a good sound, but quite harmless, which will impress the popular mind with the idea that a great deal is being done when in reality, very little is intended to be done, unquote, said a railroad company executive in the 1880s. Right. It's to be pacified with laws that sounded tough, but placed much discretion in the hands of regulators. So we don't need regulatory capture because what we have is a regulatory system of law that was designed by corporate leaders, where corporate leaders have always been in charge of the agencies because government puts them there because they're the experts, and regulatory law is written by the agencies working closely with the industries being regulated. So that when you participate in a regulatory system, a hearing, any kind of public process, you're entering corporate turf. And so we can't win there. So there, there was no capture. Right. Corporate turf from the beginning, it was designed that way. And the sooner that activists, especially single issue activists, really get this history, the sooner we will stop trying to pack public hearings and shut them down as a fundamental violation of our right as we the people to have decision-making authority. I think what you're talking about I mean, more and more people need to wake up to this because the level of subversion by these corporations is so much deeper than most people realize. Like, I mean, I think that's sometimes you hear this term conspiracy theory or and people just can't believe that 
the level of planning uh, against the the local communities or the activists or the you know the political actions uh, can be this devilish. But behind the scenes, you really have these corporate actors who, and we're talking about for hundreds of years, have been figuring out how to you know pacify the people while essentially stealing resources from right under our feet and paying us as little as possible. Uh, you know, to get this stuff. That's right. I mean, basically what rulers have always wanted to do is figure out how to vacuum out resources, but to do it totally legally. And it doesn't matter whether rape and pillage is going on, as long as they've written laws that cover their own asses, then there we are. We have, so, you know, you were asking about the, this early history, we've got, you know, the Africa company and the East India company Mm -hmm. and, um, all sorts of other crown corporations chartered by British monarchs and other monarchs that legalized the rape and pillage and the vacuum out of resources and the, and the squashing of existing cultures and, and legal structures all over the world for profit. But they do it all legally by passing, by, by writing these corporate charters, which they then possess and they send people across the world to, you know, to vacuum up whatever they want and to monopolize trade routes. This all started in the 1400s. But, you know, the important thing is it's legal, right, according to the monarchs, because they've created brand new structures of law to make it so. Right. Well, oh, there's there's so many different places that I'd like to go. Let's start with how did the corporations get these rights in the first place? I mean, why can't our communities really stand up against them? Um, you know, they seem to have taken control at the, if you will, the top of the pyramid or at the federal or the state level. And then our communities really can't, um, you know, we, we, we don't have the legal tools with which to combat this. Um, and I guess you can angle it into what did happen, what's happened to the government where we used to have, or at least a lot of people assume that we have, uh, individual rights or common rights, but somehow the corporate rights have taken over all of these and, and they've then, um, you know, they're, they're on top of our rights. Somehow they have precedent, um, over our individual or our community's rights. So, I mean, there's a, there's a lot where you can go with that, but go, go ahead. What's on your mind? Yeah. So, you know, I think what people have to understand is that we've lived in a minority rule structure of law the entire time that we've been in the United States. Mm -hmm. So when we hear that we live in a democratic Republic, that's really not, not quite accurate. I mean, uh, James Madison, who was the primary drafter of our second existing U.S. Constitution, said the primary purpose of government is to protect the opulent minority from the majority, right? So basically, he designed a system of law that looked like a functioning democratic republic, but didn't actually quack like a functioning democratic republic. Mm-hmm. And so... But but so we we end up from the first century in the United States being minority rule in the sense that white propertyed men, which were in the five to ten percent of the population, depending on which history book you believe, um, were in charge of everything, and most of us had no personhood, couldn't vote, couldn't sue, couldn't testify in court, etc. To um, by the late eighteen hundreds, when black people are mobilizing, when women are mobilizing for personhood through, you know, through direct action, through the courts, etc., lawmaking. At that point, it becomes really important for the elite power holders, that 5 to 10%, to figure out how to maintain their minority rule. 
And so that's the moment that they start understanding that the business corporation can be the structure of law that they can hide behind and pack the institution called the business corporation filled with constitutional rights. So we go from a minority of white property men having constitutional rights to business institutions having constitutional rights and the elite hide behind those structures of law. Mm-hmm. So again, even though now most of us are persons who have rights after all of these, you know, many centuries of social movement um, struggle, it still doesn't matter because the corporations now have more constitutional rights than we do. And, and the, that history is really fascinating, and it's a 198-year history starting in 1819, and entirely through the courts, there's not a single decision where corporations want a new constitutional right through a legislature at the state or federal level, through a governor or president making a proposal. It's almost entirely the U.S. Supreme Court and occasionally a state Supreme Court that what we call, we find constitutional rights in the, we find corporate rights in the Constitution, and we say find because they're not in the Constitution, the word corporation right. at all. And so from 1819 to the present, we have one corp, uh, court decision after another that grants corporations free speech, First Amendment rights that affects their ability to completely overwhelm our, our elections and, our, and do lobbying, for example. They get uh, property rights, which... The juicy part for them is intangible property rights, which is ideas, patents, trademarks, copyrights, mm-hmm. right, um, intellectual property, and they have control then over all of that, um, which includes uh, their control over decision making itself. Uh, in, in most economic ways, they have the right against search and seizure. They have privacy rights. They have religious freedoms you know, on and on and on. And this is a continuing unfolding history that, you know, it didn't stop a while ago from 1819 to the present. We're in this situation where the Supreme Court is constantly providing more and more constitutional rights for something that doesn't even exist in the material world, right? If I said, take a picture of the number seven, you actually couldn't do that. It's a mind-made concept. Right. It's the same with take a picture of Monsanto or Exxon or BP mm-hmm. can't do that. And you're giving rights to something that literally only exists as a figment of our imaginations. Right. It's, it's a business structure. In fact, it's just property. So we're giving First Amendment rights and, and all sorts of privacy rights, search and seizure rights to property. Right. It's insane. And so we, we need to just kind of unveil this craziness. And really, it's a house of cards if we start to understand the history. And we can knock down the house of cards more easily than we realize. Well, one of the things that you're describing to me that's really fascinating is that there's actually this, this, what they say that they're doing, this, this overt constitution that says we all have rights that looks like a democracy, but then there's this covert corporate structure that has is working behind the scenes constantly without really any analysis in the light of day without really the average person being able to understand what's going on primarily using the legal system and not the democracy so we're not debating these things on the floor of the house of representatives that they're happening slowly over almost 200 years now 
one court decision at a time, completely behind the scenes. Uh, and then 200 years later, people find that they have, you know, their communities have no rights, they have no rights, and these corporations can come in and they can, you know, pollute your water, they can take your resources from underneath your house or, or above your house. Uh, they don't have to pay you anything for it, and you're lucky to get a job that can barely pay the bills, and you're in debt to the corporations all the time. You're literally shopping at the company store, as they say. That's, the, that's essentially what our whole economy seems to have become. So trying to find some way to counteract all of this, I mean, it's a very big project. They have a leg up. Let's go ahead and go way back. One of the things that you've talked about, and, and you touched on this already, but just the history of the corporation, because it really is um, about the creation of the empire. So, I mean, we have this notion in the United States that we were part of the British Empire, but then we liberated ourselves and we became this free country. Um, but really, with, these, with this corporate dominance, and the history goes way back, you've already mentioned like the East India Company. These were the first transnational corporations that were started by the feudal governments of the time. Um, and this is the lineage of the same transnational corporations that we're using today. So why don't you go back into that history a little bit more, and then we'll talk about you know, what happened. I'd like for you to talk a little bit about your comparison and contrast between the Articles of Confederation and then how things sort of went downhill from there. Well, yeah, I mean, um, I mean, I, I've already given a brief overview of the the crown corporations. Um, you know, what what happened after that is that we have an authentic American revolution where people who are not white propertyed men fight and die for liberty and justice for all. Mm -hmm. And out of that comes, you know, a real revolution is is established. And out of that, we turn our thirteen colonies, which believe it or not, were all crown corporations chartered by monarchs. We turned them into representative states with, you know, with elected representatives. And what the public assumed was going to happen at that point was that we were going to end up with true democracy at the local and state level. And if you look at the early state constitutions, you see this truly remarkable language. So let me read you a paragraph from the original state constitution from Pennsylvania, where they're embedding the lo local democracy right into the document. And of course, this was too much of a threat to empire. And so mm -hmm. it was struck from the Pennsylvania and every other state constitution within a decade or two, and it was gone. But here's the early language of Pennsylvania's constitution, that government is or ought to be instituted for the common benefit, protection, and security of the people, nation, or community, and not for the particular emolument or advantage of any single man, family, or set of men who are only part of that community, and that the community has an indubitable, unalienable, and indefeasible right to reform, alter, or abolish government in such manner as shall be by that community judged most conducive to the public wealth, right? I mean, that is a truly revolutionary statement. Mm -hmm. And intriguingly, that's one of the, that kind of language is about all that's left in our state constitutions. For example, let me read you the opening paragraph of Oregon and California state constitutions, and you see the lineage. So here in Oregon, article, and it's always right front and center. This is where this is the last remnant of the American Revolution in our constitutional documents, and we the people ignore this language at our peril. 
Article 1, Bill of Rights, Section 1, Natural Rights Inherent in People. We declare that all power is inherent in the people, and all free governments are founded on their authority and instituted for their peace, safety, and happiness. And they have at all times the right to alter, reform, or abolish the government in such manner as they may think proper. That's our current Oregon Constitution. Here's Article 2, Section 1 of the California Constitution. All political power is inherent in the people. It doesn't get any clearer than that, right? right. Yeah, totally. I, I know. Yes, craziness, right? <laughs> Government is instituted for their protection, security, and benefit, and they have the right to alter or reform it when the public good may require. And let me throw this at you one more time. Abraham Lincoln. In his inaugural address, right, this is his first hour in office as president, and his inaugural address includes the following comment. This country with its institutions belongs to the people who inhabit it. Whenever they shall grow weary of the existing government, they can exercise their constitutional right of amending it or their revolutionary right to dismember or overthrow it. So imagine a Clinton or an Obama or a Trump yeah, right. in their first minutes as president of the United States. <laughs> it just shows you how crazy the situation is. And so you have this situation now where we've got thousands of single issue emergency response organizations mm -hmm. all trying to stop the latest pipeline, the latest clear cut, the latest GMO field. The latest rise in your crazy insurance rates for your home, home or health insurance. And these groups don't understand that they're battling a system of law that needs to be taken on not as we the peasants, but we the sovereign. Right. And that's what people don't understand. That it's not, it's not a matter of what I say in my workshops is if you're pleading with or making demands of uh, cor government or corporate institutions, if you're signing online petitions, if you're marching and picketing, if you're protesting outside of corporate headquarters, if you're suing corporations, you're acting as a subordinate, right? Mm -hmm. We the people have the authority to instruct our corporate and government institutions. And if they don't uh, abide by what we're telling them as their superiors, then we have the right to alter, reform, or abolish these government structures, right? If there isn't consent to the governed, then we have to act. And so that's what we're doing in Community Rights U.S. is we're trying to get these local uh, activist institutions to shift gears and understand that we're in, a, we're in a truly an emergency situation now in the world in terms of climate and everything else. Right. Have to start acting as the sovereign, and saying, if our government is not, if there's no consent of the governed, the way it's governing us, it's time for us to act as the superior, not pleading and demanding. And so Community Rights U.S. is our attempt to do that. And we just launched just a few hours ago this new national campaign. And I want to urge folks listening or watching to go to our website at communityrights.us rather than .org.us and check us out and consider making a generous contribution because we need to raise about $100,000 to fund our first year of a national support organization for this movement. 
Yeah, I mean, I got to tell you, Paul, I am uh, 100% down. I'd love to any interviews or any help that you need from my end that I can offer uh, in order to help to promote this idea because it's uh, one of the most exciting things. As you said, uh, it's about empowering individuals. I mean, I think so many people feel so alienated in the current system just because, I mean, what can you do? Um, you know, I used to uh, host a, a local open lines program. People would call up just so frustrated about the political system and, and everyone, I mean, I think everyone anywhere in the United States, they feel so disempowered. Um, and you, you yourself just read the language. I mean, again, there's this overt and covert, but the overt language, I mean, it's right there in the constitutions of every state in the American constitution. We have rights. I mean, you know, the fact that they're not enforcing those rights doesn't mean that we shouldn't stand up for them. And, uh, you know, it's, it's the brilliance of this whole concept of community rights, that it provides a mechanism for communities and individuals to be able to stand up for those rights and start to yeah. use the legal system in the same way the corporations have covertly used this legal system in the background for the last 200 years to abscond with our rights and empower themselves. Well, we can say, hey, you know, bring it on. Let's uh, let's use this same system to make make the change. That's exactly right. So what communities are doing all over the United States, 200 communities and counting in about in nine states. I'll tell you the states because it's pretty amazing how diverse it is. So mm -hmm. 200 communities in Pennsylvania, Maryland, New Hampshire, Maine, New York, Colorado, Ohio, California, and Oregon have passed local ballot initiatives or local ordinances through their city or town or county council that do three extraordinary things. They ban a particular a variety of, of corporate harm. So they ban pipelines, or they ban GMO ag, or they ban fracking, etc. Each of these ordinances strips that sector of corporations of all of their constitutional rights within the boundaries of that city or town or county. And each of them um, enshrines the right of that community to govern itself and to protect its own health, safety, and welfare, which, you know, crazy enough, all of our elected officials sign an oath that they are going to protect the health, safety, and welfare of their local constituents. But right. the problem is that it's actually and literally illegal for them to do that <laughs> because for us to protect our health, safety, and welfare, where we live violates corporate constitutional rights, states' preemption authority over us, and something called Dillon's Rule, which is this crazy thing from a late 1800s Iowa state Supreme Court judge where he determined and it became the law and custom of the, of the country that the proper relationship between state government and local is that of parent to child, that the local becomes just a subset of state government and is only allowed to do what state government authorizes local government to do. And so you put these what I call structures of law hidden in plain sight all together and you get this system where we, the people, can't even protect ourselves where we live. And we argue in Community Rights US that if you can't govern yourselves properly and protect yourselves properly in the town or city where you live, if the democratic system doesn't work for you there, you can't live. You can't claim that you live in a functioning democratic society. Mm -hmm. And so this work is about insisting that we're going to exercise our sovereign authority as we, the people, at the local level. And we push back on these structures of law 
and say, we're not going to abide by them. And in fact, we're going to nullify them within our local systems because they violate our rights. Simple as that. And the powers that be say, well, you can't do that. That's illegal. And we create this jurisdictional crisis between the local and the state or the local and the federal. And here's the part, Doug, that I think is just most fascinating, is that we can't wait for government to enforce our protection. We have to become we the people, which is not just a cool and interesting idea that Paul is saying in an interview. Right. It's actually the question of what does it look like, feel like, sound like, think like, act like for me and you to start functioning every hour of every day as if we fully get it that we are a member of a body called we the people that has authority over all institutions in the United States, right? That's the craziest part of this is that most of us think, oh, that community rights stuff, that's kind of cool. But what does it look like to internalize it, to fully embody an understanding of ourselves as the people? And my colleague, Eva Hamilton, and I in Community Rights US are in the early stages of formulating a brand new weekend workshop intensive called Becoming We the People, which we Mm. hope to have ready for testing in the spring, where we spend an entire weekend with 10 or 20 or 30 people in a local community And we practice acting like and thinking like the people rather than activists, rather than consumers, rather than rugged individualists, right? What does that feel and look and think and smell like, right? For us to embody peopleness, right? And we don't know how to do that. And that's to me the most exciting work is the culture shift work because you can pass an ordinance in your local community. But if, you, if the public doesn't realize what they've just done, the power of what they've just done, then you're only a tiny bit of the way there towards the culture shift that needs to happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what it's all about. That's definitely why I'm doing this program. As you can imagine, I mean, we do need to make this shift. And the most important shift that we can make is to empower ourselves. I mean, until we actually feel it, as you say, embody it you know, they're going to walk all over us. They're trying to keep us alienated. They're trying to keep us disempowered because then the people at the top, you know, they've created this pyramid and the people at the top have centralized power and uh, they don't want us to wake up and realize that it says in that first paragraph of every constitution that we, the people have the power to govern ourselves, you know? I mean, it's both really easy and really hard what we're talking about, right? Right, right, totally. Imagine, I I, I mean, I'm joking really, but I imagine sometimes thinking, what would it look like for 10 people to sit in a room for an entire day together and just read that paragraph out loud over and over hundreds of times and go, okay, what does that mean for me? What would I be doing differently? Like literally, it's like it's a full embodiment shift. It's not just an idea shift. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Can you discuss some of the uh, actual on the ground communities that you've been dealing with and a lot of the variety of the topics that you've been helping people out with? And one of the things that I wanted to talk about with you, too, was the different kinds of communities, because this community rights notion really transcends the typical left-right paradigm. And that's one of the things that I love about it because I think as long as we're being, I mean, I see it as a divide and conquer technique to to get us all arguing Democrats versus Republicans when it's like, no, it's the many versus the few, you know? It's like like that's it's right. the people versus a yeah. handful of, of really greedy individuals that have taken control. So 
You know, we've got to get out of that habit. That's one of the, I see a lot of bad habits almost like the alienation, the disempowerment is a habit. Hard to break, simple though, in concept to understand. Like, can we embody our own personal power, our community power? And, uh, you know, can we get past this left-right paradigm in our communities? I mean, this is such important stuff. And, you know, I, I think about Bernie Sanders' campaign and the fact that you know, he came close to actually winning the presidency, first winning the Democratic nomination and then winning the presidency, potentially, at least we think, mm -hmm. through tiny little donations from literally tens of millions of people, right? Whereas his Democrat opponent was, ra was raising enormous amounts of money from corporations and she couldn't even keep up. So even in a system that is this screwed up, this fixed, we still had a situation where the public saw its own power and authority in a money-driven election. So that's really exciting. And when you look at the people who voted for Trump, millions and millions of them voted for Bernie Sanders in the primary and right. then Trump in the general. So we really have to get over this idea that everyone who voted for Trump is an ideological racist or white supremacist. You know, I, I think that's part of the divide and conquer, actually. Yeah. Like, it's gotten yeah. so over the top. And it's like, look, actually, a lot of people voted for Trump because he was anti-establishment. I mean, like him or hate him, like, don't... They're, you're right. And they're not paying close enough attention to understand what they were really going to get. But mm -hmm. to answer your, you know, your question, I've been traveling all over the United States more than ever. I'm on the road two or three weeks every month at, at, at this point. I was in um, Iowa and Wisconsin and Minnesota and Michigan on this last trip. Wow. In Flint, Michigan, just a week and a half ago at a Water is Life Summit, leading a workshop on how you could use community rights ordinances to take back a city council's authority to protect its own water supply from this insanity of these emergency managers appointed by um, Governor Snyder. Um, I was in Detroit. I led an introductory workshop in Detroit a couple weeks ago. I'd never been in either community. It was a, definitely a wake-up moment for me to see the state of these American cities. Um, right. Detroit, I had mostly uh, labor organizers and poor people's campaign organizers at the workshop, which was exciting for me. Huh that there were really skilled organi community organizers, you know, listening to this stuff. And I felt like they asked much more fundamentally deep and challenging questions of me than I'm usually asked because they're, you know, virtually, they're basically professionals doing organizing work. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Uh, and they really pushed me and they found this, this framework, this community rights strategy, very exciting. And both of these communities are hoping to have me back. And at the conference in Flint, I met um, a whole variety of people also who were battling Nestle's water bottling operations all over Ontario and Michigan, and I've already been invited to go back in early November to Macosta, Michigan, um, to lead an introductory workshop about how to stop Nestle Corporation from opening more water bottling. And interestingly enough, I was able to tell them in the workshop that more than a decade ago in the town of Shapley, Maine, one of the early community rights ordinances was passed that stopped Nestle from building a water bottling plant by, by banning corporations engaging in water bottling and stripping water corporations of their constitutional rights. Mm -hmm. you know, and it has stood as law ever since in Shapley, Maine, and one other Maine community. Um, and then across rural Wisconsin, 
I met with folks in rural townships who were trying to stop frac sand mining and factory farms, which are uh, both crisis situations because they both poison the groundwater in an area where the where the land is literally built in such a way that it's a sponge and it's it's called karst geology and any thing that any kind of a large amount of poison that you pour onto the ground anywhere in this particular region ends up dispersing across an enormous area and contaminating everybody's water hmm. kind of like in Hawaii um, kind of similar geological situation so and in just a couple of weeks I'm going to Athens Georgia I have never taught in Georgia before working with grad students I'm going to be in New Orleans in a couple of weeks at a, at, a, at a national summit on rights of nature, and then back to Michigan for more workshops. So it's just kind of amazing how this movement is taking off. And again, I want to say that if you're excited about what you're hearing, check out Community Rights US, which is our new national organization that launched today, Thursday, October 12, and we're trying to raise $70,000 in 30 days. And if you go to communityrights.us, you can find out about us. And I really want to urge you to consider making a really generous donation and not just a $25 or $35 donation, but something that's a lot more generous than you might normally make because this work is the most effective work to take on corporate rule that's going on in the United States today. And we need to exponentially expand um, our, the reach of our movement if we're going to make a real difference. Yeah, I mean, I'm excited about it. I really think that there's a lot. I mean, one community at a time, we can chip away at this corporate power base and we can start to take the power back for the people. Um, I was wondering what um, what has been happening in terms of this legal process? Um, how many of these ordinances or initiatives have actually been passed nationwide? And then how many of them have been um, you know, have been taken to court? And what are the corporations doing in terms of fighting back against this kind of thing? So of the 200 communities in nine states that have passed these, uh, remarkably, 95% of those 200 communities have not been legally challenged. So approximately 190 are standing. They're unchallenged in court, 190 of 200 communities. That's a remarkable record. Wow, yeah. So there's about 10 of 200 communities that have been sued, and most of them are situations where the town or city council or board of supervisors of the county found out that there was the threat of a lawsuit. Usually it's not even a filed lawsuit. It's just a letter from a, a law firm threatening an imminent lawsuit against the town or county if they don't pull the ordinance off their books. And they immediately go into closed session because they're so terrified and they remove the ordinance. Yeah. The public's will. That's how most of them have ended. Right. Interesting. That's really interesting as people don't have the political will to really take it on, to take it to court. Yeah. And it makes sense because the corporate attorneys will basically say to the local elected officials, and we know how poor most local governments are these days. They've been stripped of so much of their funding that used to come back from the feds. Mm -hmm. Local elected officials are told, if you fight this, it's an uphill battle because these ordinances violate corporate rights and state preemption, et cetera. And so the judges are going to side with the corporation, which tends to happen if there is a lawsuit and you're going to be sued and the community could be bankrupted. And so what's, and so most local government officials think that they're doing the right thing, 
by not threatening the lawsuit. And what's so fascinating is that these 200 communities, local officials who have passed these things have reached the point as have their constituents where they, they finally get it culturally that they have to take on the possibility of being sued and that that's less terrifying than their community being destroyed by fracking or clear cutting or whatever else the big, the, the, the giant corporations directors are wanting mm-hmm. to happen there, right? That they don't want the culture, the way of life, the health and welfare of the people to be destroyed. And that's a bigger threat, right? So we have to stop being terrified of being sued because what we have to understand is that the entire legal structure is set up to defend what any, what every corporation, let me start again. The entire legal structure is set up to defend what corporate leaders want to do, right? So what if they want to do a whole new thing that's never been done before, they just get the law changed so that that activity is now legal. Mm-hmm. So when we, the people, try to challenge it, we're told, oh, that's settled law. Those corporations have rights, right? And so we have to get over this fear and say, these, you know, the system of law is set up to make corporate harm inevitable. And so we can't just battle one corporate harm at a time. We have to take down the structures of law that make corporate harm inevitable. Yeah, I mean, it's it's actually insane. I mean, corporations back in 1800, they were designed initially to just be basically a one-time deal, right? Where a government would create a corporation to build a bridge and you'd have like the Golden Gate Bridge Corporation. And then once the bridge was built, a lot of times the corporation would be dissolved. It had... You know, it had one function and that was the end of it. And the fact that it's evolved into this transnational, global, colonial system of empire is outrageous. And what I've learned, I mean, everything that you're talking about, you know, it's funny because of the political activism that I've done here in Mendocino County, where we tried to apply these community rights issues, is I, I've seen it here in our own county. We have uh, the Mendocino Redwood Company, which owns... of all the land. And I've started to see this as like the king's land. It really is a state of feudalism where the people who live here can't utilize the resources on 30% of the the land. Not only that, we're lucky to get a job with the Mendocino Redwood Company for $30,000 a year, which is scraping by, while they're taking all of the Redwoods out of the county, selling them and making millions and millions of dollars that our community never sees. It's it's actually, it's insane that we stand yeah. by and we allow this to happen. We don't realize that we've, I mean, I think Americans are, they have such a high standard of living, or at least they feel that way. They have air conditioning and TVs and, yeah. and, and so it, it convinces them that, you know, oh, I'm, I'm doing okay, or I live in the first world, so I shouldn't complain, but it's like, these guys have hundreds of billions of dollars because they're extracting yeah. resources from your community and they're trashing your environment while they do it. So, right, And they're doing it all legally. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I mean, that's the most amazing thing is that we, the people, allow a, a structure of law called a business corporation that doesn't even exist in the material world to own 30% of the landscape of Mendocino County to devastate the health of the landscape completely legally. Mm-hmm to exclude citizens who are the sovereign from their land from trying to stop them completely legally because they have more constitutional rights than we do. It's really a perfect example. And what you could do is you could turn around and say, well, wait a minute. 
we're allowing corporations to have a constitutional right that allows their directors to decide to, to export, to turn basically the logging that happens in the county into just a raw log export situation. Mm. We're going to say that from this point forward, all logging that happens on corporate land, because again, there are subordinates in this framework, that all logging that happens on corporate land shall be done in the following ecoforestry situation, and that all logs are remain in the county for secondary and tertiary manufacturing purposes, right? And that none of this wood leaves the county until it's a, a finished product, right? And you could actually right. that as a community rights ordinance, but we the people don't even, it doesn't even occur to us to think that because we've been told that that decision is up to the logging company's executives. Yeah, absolutely. And so there we are again. So we plead or we make demands on the logging company. But you notice it's like we're not, we didn't elect the logging company executives right. <laughs> out of office. And so we think that they're immune from our political capacity over them because we don't understand this thing that I'm glad you, you raised where for the first century in the United States, corporations were understood to be our subordinates. They were given charters that lasted 10 or 30 years. Mm -hmm. They were required to serve a social need and to do no harm. Their directors and stockholders were held personally liable for all harms and debts. Right. Everybody who was involved in the corporation had to live in the state where it was chartered. And on and on and on, right? Their, 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 their records, their finances were public information. And if they violated their charters, their charters were revoked, which means you don't sue the company. You revoke its charter. You, you dissolve the, the legal fiction, the it. Mm -hmm. If necessary, you criminally charge the directors who've caused harm or significant debt in the community. And that's the proper relationship between we the people and our corporate creations. Because what we keep forgetting, the public forgets that corporations are state actors. They're state creations. Right. You can't charter a business or a nonprofit corporation in the United States without going through a, a formal process in state government. And yeah. it looks like a right, but it's a privilege. Right. Monsanto, Exxon, BP, Aetna. Right. The insurance companies. These are state creations. We have authority to define what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do. And as long as we're just battling the latest symptom, we're frankly, we're screwed. Yeah, I, I think it's so true. This part of the left-right paradigm makes it seem like it's the corporations against the state. And people don't see that it's actually the state and the corporations are one and the same. They're working together on all of this. This is a this is complete collusion. This isn't, you know, the only way to defeat this, you know, this Leviathan, if you will, is to, like you're saying, become empowered as we the people and stand up for our rights against this, you know, this beast that's coming in and, and taking over. We've had some situations here in Mendocino County. Well, one of the other things I wanted to mention while we're on this topic, actually, is that now those boards of directors even have limited liability on, on corporations. So the right. government is granting these people the rights to destroy your environment without being liable for any of the damage that they do. Right. And that started in the late 1800s. And, and this is all stuff that we can reverse. Yeah. And that's why I talk about it as a house of cards, because corporate constitutional rights are built on judge made law over 198 years. And judges are not supposed to make law. That is not their role. 
They're supposed to interpret law, mm-hmm. right? So talk about an activist court, right? Here we have a 100-year <laughs> activist court. Doesn't matter if it's Democrats or Republicans. They're corporatists on the court, right? And so they're more and more they're giving rights to these not these institutions that don't even exist in the in the real world in the material world, and it's a travesty. And once again, I want to tell people if you're just tuning in, please check out our national campaign, Community Rights US. The website is communityrights.us, and at the top of the page, you'll see a really pretty picture with text on top that talks about our campaign. And if you click there, you'll end up on our Indiegogo Generosity Campaign website, where we launched this morning, October 12, and are running a 30-day fundraising campaign trying to raise 70000 of the 100000 we need to launch our first-year budget so that we can actually pay people real wages Mm-hmm. And travel around the country teaching this stuff and helping communities to pass these ordinances. So if you're concerned about corporate rule, I really want to urge you to put your money where your mouth is and also to let us know that you want to volunteer in your community and get involved in this work in that way. Or bring one of us down to lead a workshop. So, Because Mendocino County is is the star county in the entire state of California. It is still the only place in the state of California that's passed a community rights ordinance. And I was really proud to be a part of it. Yeah, that was great. And I want to say, too, that if any of you who are out there listening do get an opportunity to take one of Paul's workshops, absolutely do it. You're only getting a taste in this one-hour conversation of all the information that he goes through. The history of corporate power is fascinating, and it's well worth it for everybody to learn as much as they can about this it's like this slowly growing monster that took over everything almost in this kind of, well, we talk about it in this covert way, in this behind the scenes way that the next thing you know, people still think, I think most people to this day think that they have these rights and, oh, we live in America and it's this free society and it's this great democracy. And they just don't realize how broken and corrupt the system is. And it's maybe it's easier to go on believing that instead of to to kind of realize the truth, but until you can can face the truth and stand up to it, it's just going to stay the same. It's certainly easier and more fun to whine and scream and complain than it is to participate. Right. <laughs> right? But when you see, you know, what percentage of Americans at this point trust Congress or the Senate, we're down to like 9%, right? When you see what percent trust our current president, we're down to one third, right? So you know, people are, are outraged. I mean, that's part of why Trump won, is that people are so outraged at what's going on in the governance structures in the society that they're really, in a way, it was like throwing a bomb into the system, I think, by voting for a Trump or a Sanders, is why they were both really popular. Sure. They were outsiders that were saying the emperor has no clothes. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people have realized that I actually think that Something like this community rights movement has a huge potential, and at some point, people are going to have to come out of the woodwork. I mean, I just, I know that they're there. We know that the vast majority of Americans are disgruntled. It's like, you're, I think Congress's approval rating has been hovering around 10% for 15 or 20 years. I mean, it's a democracy. Shouldn't it at least be close to 50%, you know? So we need less, we need fewer disgruntled people and more gruntled people. Yeah, right. <laughs> Well, um, I, you know, we're looking at maybe about 10, 10 more minutes left, and I, I wanted to go back to this problem of being afraid of the lawsuit, because this is 100% what's been going on here in Mendocino County. Our Board of Supervisors, 
is just so scared of the idea of community rights. And I, I think a lot of, uh, and then a lot of the people who live here, they, they buy the talk. I mean, first of all, I don't think it's that expensive. Every county has a county council. Every city has a lawyer that they hire that's on staff. Um, but people are just afraid. They've been so disempowered. We had a situation here uh, where there was uh, an initiative that was passed by the people to eliminate this process called hack and squirt, which is something that the Mendocino Redwood Company does to kill off all the oak trees. Now, because of state preemption, the county government is not allowed to pass any kind of ordinance that, that has anything to do with pesticide use. Only the state can do that, right? <laughs> the claim, again. Yeah. yeah, right, totally. The claim is, so we... What it, what would it, so here's an example of becoming we the people. So what would it look like, Doug, for you at this point to not say the state has the authority to pre, preempt, but to say it in a more you know constructively critical way, right? Least to say the state claims that it has authority. Absolutely. What we the people want in terms of hack and squirt, right? <laughs> just like start getting into that culture shift place, where and then right if you say the state claims but we're taking our power back, then the person who hears that, here's a completely different thing than the state state preempts us so there's nothing we can do, which is how most single-issue activists talk, right? If that's what an activist is teaching, no wonder we feel powerless, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've got to, you know, I mean, at least the theory is that we get these individual rights, these human rights from the state of nature and the state, the, the government, cannot take them away and we do have to we have to claim it the state claims they can take these powers away from us but it can't you know we have the power to stand up to it and when mendocino county when when mendocino redwood company does hack and squirt right i would also say that differently i would say that i would figure out the names and the names of the directors of mendocino redwood company and i'd say not the company is doing hack and squirt but the following individuals are legally poisoning right. the people and the landscape of our county. Yeah. Because remember, the Mendocino Redwood Company is just a, it's a facade. It doesn't really exist in any relevant world. Right. Right. So there's this thing called MRC, right? And we just, we give it authority. We go, okay, I guess there's nothing we can do because we can't fire the MRC board of directors. Right. And yet, what if we saw it instead as there's just living beings on a living planet? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It's not there's there's not this like mythical box floating in air. <laughs> it made decisions to hack and squirt. Right. And that's part of the culture shift that we're talking about in terms yeah. of becoming we the people. Right. The following six individuals or whatever they are. Here's their names. They live in the following communities. They yeah. go to the following churches, etc., right. or synagogues or whatever. <laughs> These are the people who are legally poisoning us yeah. because of structures of law hidden in plain sight that we act as if there's nothing that we can do about. Yeah, totally. Right? And then the thing changes. And I said to the main organizer of the Hack and Squirt Ordinance a couple of years ago, you can't build into your ordinance something where the state can claim preemption over you, right? You have to build into, and, and I wish that this person, you know, would reconsider the way that it was written and yeah. because community rights ordinances 
build right into the language of the local law, we are nullifying state preemption in this ordinance when it violates the people's right to protect our own health and safety and welfare where we live. We're, vi we're, we're nullifying corporations possessing constitutional rights. When those constitutional rights violate the rights of people where we live, et cetera, et cetera, right? So we're making a legal argument that those rights, those structures of law, no longer have power and authority over us where we live. Mm -hmm. I wish that that person would internalize this kind of messaging and try it again. And maybe the community could try it again. Well, just to finish the story, Paul, uh, that hack and squirt had to be, instead of going the community rights angle, which I agree with you, I think if they had written this kind of language in, they would have had a, a good, solid law, you know, case of law, a lawsuit on their hands that they could have said, hey, no, we have these rights. Uh, at least they could have given it a good shot. Instead, they tried to bypass the, the claims of the state, which said that uh, the state has the right to make all decisions about pesticide exactly. use. And, so, around. and they yeah. turned it into a fire suppression issue. Right. And they said, oh, no, these dead standing oak trees are a fire hazard and the county can uh, pass ordinances and initiatives that affect our, um, you know, our ability to keep the the forests clear of fire hazards. So they, they use this workaround. The thing passed by 60% or more. Right. The, the people like voted for it. The public wants the, the poisoning of their forests ended. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, duh, right. <laughs> and and, and so yet. I, well, and so I, I want to actually take on one little thing that you said a second ago while mm -hmm. we still have time here. Yeah. And say that you know, the way that you introduced this was that, you know, we're going to we could push a community rights ordinance as far as we could go until there's like a legal challenge. One of the things that makes our work so extraordinary and unique is that if it's or if the ordinance is already passed that stripped the corporations and the state from authority over us, right, with insisting that that poisoning is the law and is going to continue. At that point, we the people say, wait a minute, courts, we're not going to abide by the courts overruling our ordinance mm -hmm. because you're our subordinate and you, too, are required to serve we the people. And if you're saying the poisoning of our landscapes and people is required under law, then that's not consent to the governed once again. So we have increasing numbers of communities around the United States that are putting in their community rights ordinances language that say that we're not going to abide by the court decision and we're going to use nonviolent direct action. This is language in the actual ordinance. Wow. Use language. We're going to, we're going to use residents committing nonviolent direct action to enforce the ordinance as a form of local enforcement authority. In other wow. words, we're going to build our own local enforcement situations right into the language. I have, I don't that's, know if we have. That's awesome. Yeah, go ahead. We can go a few minutes over. So here's an ordinance from Grant Township, Pennsylvania. This was an amendment to their home rule charter last year. Section two, right to directly enforce people's rights. Here's the paragraph. If a, And this passed. This is now law in Grant Township, Pennsylvania, which is, by the way, one of the most community rights revolutionary places in the United States today. Nice. If a court fails to uphold the Grant Township Home Rule Charter's limitations on corporate power or otherwise fails to uphold the rights secured by Article I of the Charter, 
the rights and prohibitions secured by the charter shall not be affected by that judicial failure, and any natural person may then enforce the rights and prohibitions of the charter through direct action. If enforcement through nonviolent direct action is commenced, this law shall prohibit any private or public actor from bringing criminal charges or filing any civil or other criminal action against those participating in nonviolent direct action. Wow. If filed in violation of this provision, the applicable court must dismiss the action promptly without further filings being required of nonviolent direct actions, direct action participants. Nonviolent direct action, in quotes, as used by this provision shall mean any nonviolent activities or actions carried out to directly enforce the rights and prohibitions contained within the Grant, Grant Township Home Rule Charter. That's amazing. So you're turning the people's will, the majority will, we've already passed the ordinance, we've already said in this case, no frack water waste shall be dumped in our township. We've already passed it overwhelmingly through the ballot box. If the courts overrule us, we don't just go, oh, I guess the courts overruled us. Right. <laughs> we go, Wait a minute. The courts are required as our subordinate to serve we the people, right? This is now a new violation of our rights. We're going to use nonviolent direct action by the local residents to enforce the ordinance. That's and amazing. Legal under county law. Yeah. And I think this is the kind of thing that it's going to take. I mean, just to finish our story about the hack and squirt here in Mendocino, uh, it got it passed. Everybody was for it. And the company just said, no, we we're not going to follow it. And that was the end of it. They're hack and squirting all day. It doesn't matter about the 60 percent, 70 percent of us who voted against against the practice. The Board of Supervisors refuses to sue. And that's just the end of it. I mean. And you that's know. why you need to write a different ordinance and do the culture shift work along with it so right. that it passes, you've passed an ordinance that says, we the people are serious about this, and we're going to end this poisoning, and if the courts overrule us, we're going to continue the prohibition through nonviolent direct action because we are the sovereign and we have this authority. And that was the key missing piece in the hack and spurt ordinance that passed. Mm -hmm. And I would urge you folks to think about running it again. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, the more the more of these that are that are more well written, these community yeah. rights initiatives with yeah. with more refined language. And I know that that's where you come in. And I think maybe we could even wrap it up uh, yeah. with, with this concept. Like what what kind of ordinances, what kind of initiatives maybe give people a little bit of on the ground organization uh, how to get these things actually going, but sp specifically the language that goes into these that can really combat this pro-corporate uh, political legal yeah. situation that we're confronted with today. Well, I've been very excited to be twice uh, visiting Newport, Oregon on the Oregon coast, Lincoln County in the last month, where they just passed Oregon's first community rights ordinance. Very exciting. A couple nice. of months ago, Lincoln County passed the Freedom from Aerially Sprayed Pesticides Ordinance. Oh, wow. Because poisons are being sprayed from helicopters on forest and farmland on a regular basis um, in Lincoln County. And I'm, I think it's the best ordinance that I've seen anywhere in the country. It's really exciting, and it contains that nonviolent direct action clause um, in, a, in, a, in a shorter form. Um, this ordinance and many other ordinances can be found 
linked through communityrights.us, our new website that launched today, and other ordinances around the country um, include like some of the some of the latest ones. There's one. There's actually a freedom from religious discrimination to protect Muslim folks in a community that's being considered in, in a Northeast state right now. Mm-hmm. Um, there are fracking ordinances that continue to be passed, anti-fracking ordinances around the country. Um, there are communities looking at banning pipelines in various parts of the country. Um, where I'm hoping that we have a, a factory farms ban in at least one or two Iowa and Wisconsin townships in the next couple of months. But if you go to communityrights.us, you'll find a page that lists all of the categories of ordinances that either have been passed or are in the process of being organized and campaigned for. And in the next couple of weeks, we'll be launching on our website links to dozens and dozens of these ordinances. Um, it's, it's a massive research effort to pull it all together. And we'd hope to have it by today, but it's still it's not quite ready. But at least there's a list of the topics of ordinances at communityrights.us. Mm-hmm. Well, great. I can't. Uh, I just can't stress enough the work that you're doing. I think this community rights movement has the most potential that I've seen uh, in my personal political activism in terms of really confronting, like you're talking about, the source of the problem. The source of the problem, which to me and I think is obvious to most, uh, the 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 centralization of power in a handful of corporations um, and taking the power out of the hands of the people the means of production, uh, the vast uh, majority of the resources going straight into the hands of the few people that control these corporations instead of being spread out, the wealth spread out into uh, the hands of all of us, getting to a point now where this term debt slavery is becoming more and more common. I mean, people are living their whole lives working for the corporations, and then when they die, they still owe $100,000 on their house, or they took them 25 years to... Yeah, the, the college loans, right? <laughs> I mean, you can't get ahead. You just can't even get ahead anymore. And uh, and it's because, like the Hoover vacuum cleaner, these corporations are coming into all of our communities and sucking up all of our resources, and we're not getting any piece of the action. Because we allow them to. Right. right? That's the piece we have to understand. When a logging corporation clear cuts, when an agricultural corporation does monocropping or GMO seeds, when we end up with GMO salmon on our supermarkets, which is imminent, right? When we have the health insurance disasters that we all have in terms of what it costs to have basic coverage, we have to start understanding that we, the people, are allowing this, right? These are systems of law that we're allowing. We're allowing corporate directors to set these policies for us, for the sovereign people. Mm-hmm. And so we really have to rethink that. Well, again, I'm really excited about what's going on. I'd like to see this grow and I'd like to see, you know, I've always had this vision of a community rights network where, you know, communities all across the country are are in connected and involved uh, and giving each other advice and learning more and more, uh, refining the language that can go into these ordinances and initiatives. I think community right U.S. is the next level in this in this organization. And again, I just want to um, let everybody, if you're listening to this, please think about uh, inviting Paul into your community, taking one of these workshops. The knowledge and the empowerment is invaluable. Paul, will you give the uh, the website one more time? Yeah. So the organization is Community Rights U.S. The website is communityrights.us. 
and we have a network of resource people that are leading a, an extraordinary collection of workshops to help a local group go from a launch of a campaign through a very effective organizing process, um, becoming we the people, cultural shift process, uh, internal decision-making and conflict resolution trainings, organizing trainings, um, how this work fits into the larger nonviolence um, non uh, theory and practice movement, active listening, challenging your corporate media, all of these pieces we're offering workshops, consultations, and webinars in at communityrights.us. It's a whole national network of people coming together. Um, and what you said about networking local groups, that is one of the fundamental things that we're going to be doing. Great. Uh, and I'm already working all over the Midwest to bring regional. We, we're, we're about to have our third regional gathering in rural Iowa, Wisconsin, Minnesota in March um, of a couple dozen counties coming together to do kind of horizontally based solidarity support work. So that's what we're doing, and we urgently need your support. So please make a generous donation at our GoGo campaign that starts October 12 for 30 days. Thank you very much. Well, very good. And I am excited to see this movement continue to grow. I just want to let my audience know that if you like what you're hearing on The Shift, please think about uh, donating and becoming a patron for The Shift so I can continue to afford to be able to produce more and more of these. That would be at patreon.com backslash The Shift. Uh, if you want to find out more, please join the Facebook page. That's uh, The Shift with Doug McKenty. Join the conversation at Twitter, at McKenty, or find my archives and more information about the program at theshiftnow.com. Um, thanks a lot, Paul. Thanks for your work. I really appreciate everything that you're doing, and I hope that uh, all of our listeners will really think about learning more about this because I think it's got a huge potential in the future for taking the power back. Thanks, Doug. It's always a pleasure to talk to you.